Try that again. Good morning. 100% my fault. Didn't even put the mic on. No. You guys are awesome back there. Great job. Um, Usually we blame you when things go wrong. 100% my fault. Good morning. You guys are rocking it. Thank you. Good morning, church. Today is actually one of my favorite Sundays during the year. This is Family Sunday. And I actually love having kids in here. And just if you're a parent, you are the only one that is freaked out about your kids. Everybody else is glad they're here. You're wondering what they're going to do, what they're going to say. I have to tell you, on Family Sundays, I get more uh, encouragement than any other Sunday about just having kids in the service and hearing them laugh, hearing them giggle. Sometimes they cry. They talk a lot. And guess what? We love it. So parents, just relax. Just have a good time. Um, if it gets so bad that I can't keep preaching, then we'll ask you to leave, but I promise you that won't happen. I've got three kids. Uh, we know how this works. It won't be a problem. We love hearing them, so just, whew, it's good. It is good. Um, everybody right now, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to jump right in this morning. Over the last several weeks, we've been talking about how to witness Uh, how to be a witness for Jesus Christ to everyone, everywhere. And we've been looking at a whole bunch of different people. And we're going to continue this study today as we look at how to be a witness to skeptics. How do we be a witness to skeptics? And the first question, especially if you're one of our kids, is what is a skeptic? And a skeptic is somebody who maybe they're always doubting. A skeptic has endless amounts of questions. They keep asking and asking and asking and asking. And sometimes it's super frustrating to witness to a skeptic because we're afraid we won't have all the answers, right? We're afraid that we won't be able to answer their questions correctly. Somehow we got it instilled in our brains that we've got one shot to share Jesus with this person, and if we mess it up, they're never ever going to come to have faith in Jesus, and it'll be our fault, right? That's a lot of pressure. Thank God things don't work like that. But unfortunately, it's that fear in many of us that prevents us or stops us or makes us think twice before we become or before we try to share with a skeptic. I got some good news for you this morning. That is false. Those are false lies. Those are things that Satan tries to tell you to stop you from sharing. And they're wrong on a whole bunch of accounts. So we're going to share some of those accounts this morning. First is rarely does somebody come to know Jesus on the first time they hear the name of Jesus. And even if they did come, it's because of his power, not your words. Right, it's because of his power, not your words. I remember, and I think I've shared this story before, the very, very first class, the primary reason that I went to seminary was so I could argue somebody into heaven. Because I thought if I had the answers, everybody's going to heaven. And I remember I sat in that class. The very first words out of that professor's mouth were, I hope you didn't sign up for this class to try to argue somebody into heaven. And I thought, why am I paying this money? right? Why am I here? But the truth is the power is in Christ, not in our words. Christ is the one that changes hearts, and Christ changes them when he wants, how he wants, and on his timeline, not ours. So don't worry about that. Second thing is God will give you the words to say, sometimes, 
right? Jesus promised us that, and when you bring, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say, right? And sometimes that happens. But third, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you're standing there and God doesn't give you the words because God's working on something that you don't know about. God is working a situation that you don't know about. I remember one time I was driving with Isaac, and I can't remember. He was five or six years old, and we were driving in the car, and we were rocking out to Everlasting um, God by Lincoln Brewster. And Melissa, the only thing Melissa told me about the sermon is you better not try to sing that chorus, but I, have, I can't just read it. Right? You got you to say that chorus. But you know that chorus? It says, strength will rise when we wait upon the Lord, when we wait upon the Lord. You guys know that song. You recognized it. Most times people are like, I have no idea what you're singing. But that is a popular song. That we, the, the, as we wait on the Lord, our strength will rise. As we wait upon the Lord, as we wait upon the Lord. And Isaac stops, pauses it, and says, hey, Dad, if God is everywhere, why do we have to wait upon the Lord? And I thought, oh, that's a great question. And me being a, um, kind of smart, I said, hey, guess what, man? The word is like trust. So they're talking about if we trust in the Lord. And he said, well, why didn't they just say trust? I said, well, I think they're, they're trying to use scripture. So they're, they're using words of scripture, and it talks about waiting. He says, where? I said, I don't know. I'm driving. I think it's in Psalms or Proverbs. Well, if you don't know, how do you know? I said, I, I, I don't know. Well, why didn't they just say trust? Wouldn't that be easier for everybody? And then I had my, my Trump answer. Isaac, ask your mom when you get home. She will tell you whatever you want to know, right? Just ask her. But here's what's crazy. So we get home, and Isaac doesn't forget things like that. And I think sometimes he just likes to show that I don't know everything. He's like, hey, mom, dad couldn't answer my question. Can you help me? And he goes to, to, to Melissa, and he says, hey, um, why does it say we will wait upon the Lord? Why did they say wait and not trust? And Melissa goes on to this beautiful talk, and she's talking about how the author of Psalms is using words that make us stop and think, and that stirs our affections for God, and it's so much more than just singing, but it's engaging our emotions and coming before the throne of a holy God and grabbing our hearts in adoration and thanksgiving for a holy God. And I'm sitting there like, I'm taking notes. <laughs> Melissa's like giving a sermon. And it was in that car ride, God was just setting the stage for another teaching moment, another learning moment to help my kids grow. So Isaac and I both learned a ton uh, about the holiness of God and the beauty of his written word to us. So here's the question. How do we witness to skeptics? Right? If there's a never-ending list of questions, how do we witness and in Acts, Paul gives us not only a strategy of how to do it, but he also gives us the answers for responses to questions of a skeptic. So if you go ahead, we've already opened Acts. If you go to chapter 17, and just to catch you up real quick, if you remember last week we caught up with Paul and he's on his second missions trip. In chapter 17, Paul has already left Philippi. He headed to Thessalonica. He got kicked out of there. Then he headed to Berea, and his life was in danger, so he actually left there and left his team behind. And now, um, Paul's, he was in such a hurry that he, that he just left, and he went to Athens. 
And he tells his buddies, like, hey, I will meet you in Athens. I got to go now because it's not looking good. So he heads to Athens. He's just hanging out in Athens just waiting for his friends. This was not a plan to stop. He did not prepare to share the gospel. He did not prepare to engage with people. He's just hanging out there, and he's waiting for Timothy and Silas to show up before they move on to Corinth, which was in their planned trip. But this is Paul we're talking about. Like, Paul doesn't just sit and do nothing. So Paul starts going to the synagogues, and he starts going, talk, going to the marketplace, and he's preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ to anybody that will listen. And it is here in the public square that Paul initiates a gospel presentation that ended with him standing before the council of some of the leading skeptics of the time. Athens was known as this place for philosophical debate and questions. And so before we get to the council, we're going to take a quick peek and look at Paul's strategy for being a witness. And we find that beginning in uh, Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. I'm just going to go ahead and read that to you at this time. It says, and now Paul, and now while, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that this city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and brought him to the uh, Aeroscopicus, I've been practicing that all week, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So before we get to Paul's strategy, we have to understand what is going on. We have to understand who his audience is. We know that first he began in the synagogues, as that was usual for Paul to go to the synagogues. And at this point, he has left the synagogues. He's gone into the marketplace. He's in the town square. And it's the Athens town square where Paul is in the middle of the world's leading skeptics, the Epicureans and the Stoics. So the Epicureans, they were atheists. Pleasure was their number one goal. They were what we would call today hedonist. And even as hedonists, they, they did things like idle prostitutes and idle feasts and extreme entertainment, all actions to give them pleasure. And sometimes they did these actions under the guise of worship, but it was really about themselves. The answer to every single one of their questions is do what makes you feel good. That's the answer. Do what makes you feel good, um, what makes you feel right. That's the best thing for you to do right now. Stoics, they were pantheists. They were people that believed that God is in everything and that he is everywhere. There's no such thing as a personal God. He is made up of the universe and the universe is made up of him. And we, being part of this group of things, are to do our part because we're kind of like God helping him run things. And Stoics live by this personal discipline and self-control. Right? Their philosophy was they endured life. They were fatalists. There was no need for God's intervention. What is is what will be, and that's it. And hey, God, we got this. We'll kind of help you out a little bit. We got our duty. So we can see that there is a vast spectrum of people that Paul is addressing. 
the audience is made up of atheists, and it's made up with guys who thought that they were kind of God-infused. So this is the, a weird mix of people. And scripture and historical accounts tell us that these guys sat around all day doing nothing but telling or hearing something new. They would just sit around and talk. They would just keep asking questions but not really expecting answers. They were just asking questions to make themselves feel smarter, think smarter, to engage in conversation. They would just throw out all of these what-if scenarios and all of these questions. Parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? You have been there before. Kids, if you don't know this, you are some of the greatest skeptics the world has ever seen. Just the other day, Max asked a question. And I said, Max, I'm really not sure what you're asking right now. Can you say that again? And he responded, I'm not really sure what I'm asking. Lots of times, I don't know what I'm asking. I just like to ask questions. Right? That's our conversations at home, right? And this, this is who Paul is addressing during this conversation. Skeptics all over the map of thought and philosophies, all from different backgrounds. But however, in this passage, we see Paul's strategy to be a witness to every type of skeptic. Paul's strategy for witnessing the skeptics is kind of simple. The first one is just be obedient to the Spirit. Athens was not on the mission trip itinerary. Paul was supposed to be laying low. He was supposed to be quiet until his team got there. However, in verse 16, we see that Paul's spirit was stirred. This is conviction. This is the Holy Spirit working in his life. He may have been angered or grieved. We're not sure by the text. But there is clear evidence that these people were not worshiping the one true living God. And Paul was compelled to tell them about it. He was convicted. He was being led by the Holy Spirit. So Paul begins to share. So that is step one. Follow God, right? Be obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. The second thing that we see is to remain persistent. In verse 17, we see that Paul reasoned, right? He engages in discussion with those in the marketplace. And the Greek word that was translated reasoned here, it means to discuss a question with one another, to keep going back and forth in questions. And we see that in the Greek form, it was an imperfect verb. This was not a one-time event. This was something that happened again and again and again in the past. This was an ongoing action. This was not a one-time encounter or debate where Paul showed up and asked a question and they said, hey, come with us to the council. But this happened. This was a two-way conversation where Paul was engaging the locals and he was learning more about their culture and their belief over several occasions. The atmosphere here that we read in this passage was described seemed to be one of discussion and debate. It was not some type of interrogation that you'd see in a courthouse where they're uh, drilling down questions and shining light in the face. It wasn't any of that. It was guys sitting around a coffee table and talking and asking questions. Paul was engaging the, the locals in, in their favorite debate technique, a method of eliciting truth by cooperative question and answering. Just let me ask you a question and answer. A good question shakes people out of their routine thought patterns. It makes people stop and think a little bit more if we can ask that right question. And for days, if not weeks, we see Paul interacting in these types of questions with those in the marketplace. And then third, 
We need to answer with truth. In verse 18, Paul preached the good news of Jesus and his resurrection. Right? This was the one thing that both groups did not agree on. Both groups would say this never happened. And Paul didn't shy away from the truth. Paul presented the truth. He talked about the resurrection. The idea of this bodily resurrection was just a foreign concept to all of the Greeks. It sounded ridiculous. So ridiculous that they referred to him as a babbler. And what that word means is it literally means one who picks up seeds. And what they were saying was that Paul was taking thoughts from different philosophies and different religions. And he was trying to repackage them in his own belief structure. He was reinventing something new. And even when he's being ridiculed, Paul persisted in responding with the truth to the skeptics. Both the, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And as they listened, they became more curious and had more questions. So they said, hey, Paul, it's time for you to go to the council. And sometimes we hear this referred to as Mars Hill. So he went up to Mars Hill and he gave a famous sermon. But before he gave that sermon, we get to, we saw his strategy. And it's very simple. Just remember this if you remember nothing else when witnessing to a skeptic. Be obedient to the leading of the Spirit. Remain persistent. The first time they may have more questions, that's okay. Right? We just keep going and we keep answering with truth. Every question. And sometimes that truth may be, I don't know. And that is okay when we are witnessing the skeptics. I don't know. But now in his sermon, we see Paul, he goes up to Mars Hill, and this is one of my favorite parts because this answers the questions of skeptics, and as we read through this passage, we can get answers to fundamental questions that everybody has, all skeptics and children and even adults. So let's begin reading. I'm going to read, we're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. I'm going to begin in verse 22. And it says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Aragopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection and of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus and Aeropatgate and a woman named Demarius and others with them. 
This is actually a beautiful and masterful sermon that was written or given by Paul. And it's the only recorded example we have of an apostle presenting the gospel message to a pagan audience in the New Testament. This is the only version of this we have. So you can just imagine how many critiques there are, how many reviews there are, how many theological debates there are surrounding this, how many opinions on this sermon that we can just see throughout libraries. We could spend a year talking about this sermon, but this morning I just want to focus on Paul's answers to the root question of skeptics. And in this short sermon, Paul doesn't just address the Epicureans with one response and then turn to the Stoics and give them a response. He answers the baseline, the fundamental questions. And as a matter of fact, he often uses a combination of their, their teachings to answer their very own questions. And in this sermon, Paul addresses the fundamental questions of all people, right? Everywhere from the atheist Epicureans to the polytheistic Stoics and everyone in between, Paul answers the, uh, the root questions to the four basic life questions that every person asks, right? They are also the root of most of life's philosophical questions. In this simple sermon, Paul answers these four questions. Where did I come from? Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? And being able to answer these questions will not only answer skeptics' questions, but hey, they will probably answer most of your kids' questions if we know the answers to these root questions. Kids, have you even asked your parents any of these questions? Have you ever thought about where did I come from or who am I or what's the purpose? Where am I going? That's actually one of my favorite kids' questions after church. Where am I going? Do we go to McDonald's? Are we going to get pizza? What is for lunch? But when we're asking this question, we're talking about where am I going after this physical life? And by teaching absolute truths, Paul answers these questions not only for the skeptics, but for every child and every person and every adult that has ever asked these questions. Let's jump in. First, Paul answers where did I come from? Simple. God is creator. We were created by God. The Epicureans, they were atheists, and they said that all matter has always been matter and always was. And the Stoics said that everything was God. He was merely the spirit of this universe, and he didn't create anything. He just kind of organizes things in some weird way. Really? Like when we look at this, those are the best answers you can come up with when you sit out in the town and you teach and talk and ask questions and you do nothing. The scripture says you do nothing except telling or hearing something new and that is the best answer you can come up with. Yes, right? When we are searching the wisdom of man all day, every day, the best answer there is is that there's stuff floating around that accidentally somehow formed the most complex ecosystems in the universe, just by chance. And Paul starts off his sermon. If we use the Kendrick translation, he says, hey, knuckleheads. Right? Like, we're wasting a lot of time here. Hey, knuckleheads. This unknown God that you don't know, I know. And first of all, he created everything. Paul boldly proclaims this. The God who made the world and everything in it. So where did you come from? Well, you were created by God. You came from the imagination of God. He created you. 
And David knew this when he wrote this hymn of praise, praising out to God, singing out to God. David wrote this, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's room. womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. He breathes life into you. God gives us life, not just physical, but spiritual life. In Job, we read that the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And Paul boldly answers this question of where did I came from? You came from God. You were be created by God, and you are the worksmanship of an almighty and holy God. God created you. Then Paul moves on to the, the second question, who am I? And listen to this. God is provider. You are a dependent of God. Men may pride themselves in serving God, but God is who serves man. If God is self-sufficient and needs nothing from his creation, God is self-sustaining. He doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need you to uh, say that he's great. He doesn't need you to do works of service or words of affirmation. He doesn't need you to give quality time. God is self-sufficient. He is not served by human hands. It is God who gives to us life and breath and everything. It is God who is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides according to his riches. Right? Scripture says that God gives and he provides according to his riches this is some of the best news you should ever hear in your life that means that his provision the things that he gives is based on him not you it's not limited by your abilities it's not limited by your wants it's not limited by your desires because he will do more than you can ever think or imagine he is not limited by our faith or thoughts god gives according to his riches think about that for a minute God doesn't need us. God doesn't need me. God doesn't need you. God's not sitting up in heaven saying, oh, please, Kendrick, do this for me. Oh, if you don't do this, we're never going to make it. We're never going to have this joy. God doesn't need that from any of us. No matter what people think, God will not go away if we stop acknowledging him. God is not like the movie Onward, Onward, where like the father disappears. God will will not... uh, appear or become stronger based on our memories or based on our thoughts of him or based on our faith he is not dependent on us in any way shape or form if every single living person said god does not live god is not here god is nowhere there is no such thing as god god is nothing if every single person on earth said that every single person on earth would still be dependent on god for life and breath and everything else It is we who are dependent on him now and forever. Until we know just how dependent on him, we will continue to have a false sense of who we really are. We will never understand truly who we are if we don't realize that we are fully dependent on God. In other words, until we realize our dependence on God, we don't know who we are ourselves. We don't know what our purpose is or who we are or why we are here. So here's the question, is it, who are you? And scripture tells us that we have two options. We are either a hater of God or we are dependents of the King Most High. 
Those are the only two options we have. We are haters of God or we are dependents. We are sons and daughters of the, of the Almighty God who provides for us according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Who are you? Right? Before we go asking other people's questions and trying to give them answers, we need to figure that out for ourselves. Who are we? Are we dependents of God? Third, Paul answers the question, why am I here? Well, simple. God is sovereign, and you are here to worship him. That is simply why you're here. In verse 26, Paul says, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. And while there are valid discussions regarding if Paul is referring to God's provisions for the nations, or if he's referring to God's establishing nations and establishing boundaries, Sometimes we get into these debates and we miss the whole purpose of the statement. Regardless of the exact meaning, the main point of verse 26 is that God is completely sovereign. Right? God does what he wants. Him and he alone is sovereign. And this affirms monotheism and it opposes polytheism. God's not competing. He's not fighting with other gods. God sits on a throne and oversees everything. And Paul goes on to say that in his sovereignty, God makes himself known to his creation. He makes himself known that we as his creation would go and seek him and that we would know him. And Paul even quotes one of these pagan poets, uh, Aratus, and he says this, For we are also his children. And Paul says this to emphasize the shared relationship all people have to God. However, the way Paul uses this quote is no longer speaks of its stoic, panatheistic message, but it expresses the biblical principle, the biblical notion, the biblical truth of humankind's creation in God's image to have a relationship with God. That we can sit and call him Abba, Father. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus warns the woman at the well that she worships what she does not know. It is truly knowing God that leads to worship of him in truth and spirit. And that is what he is seeking. And as we begin to know him and understand his absolute holiness and his absolute goodness, as we begin to experience his never-ending grace and his unfailing mercy, we run to him. We run to him and we fall at his feet and we worship him. And the song that we just sang, uh, getting caught up in this moment, being at his feet, this holy moment of worshiping God, and we know who God is, that is the place that our heart's desire is. That is the place that we run to and the place that we want to be. Because God is the only one worthy of our worship. Humans have been created to worship God. The first question in the Westminster Catechism of 1648 is this. What is the chief and highest end of man? The answer, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. Our end, the number one reason we are here is to glorify God and to be in relationship with God. God is sovereign and God is holy and he is set apart from all of his creation. And as his creation, we were created. Our purpose in life is to worship and glorify him. Next time, kids, next time you're bored, just stop and worship God. Right? That's what you're created to do anyway. When your mom says clean your room, say, oh, I got to go worship God. That's what I'm created to do. <laughs> Pastor said, so kids, I hope you're taking notes. You might use that sometime. Fourth, 
Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Savior. Where do I go? This is the question. What happens after life? Well, Jesus is Savior, so eternal life is found only in him. And Paul preaches this. He says, a man raised from the dead who revealed himself to creation in history and in humanity. And he has authority to command all humanity to repent and turn away from their religiosity, right? Their superstitions, their act of religion. To turn from that and to turn to truth, to turn to trust in Jesus. And what Paul is saying here is that the resurrection of Jesus is God's confirmation about Jesus to all people. That he is the one that has the authority. He is the one that commands us to repent. The fact that God raised Jesus from the dead would have given him the authority to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is the ultimate redeemer and Jesus is the ultimate judge and Jesus is the only savior. And it is at this point in this sermon that Paul moves from the realm of this philosophical debate of who we are and where we're going, and he changes it. He takes it out of this, this discussion realm, and he puts it right on personal responsibility. That everyone must repent or perish. And Scripture is clear on this. right? And, and John says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And if we look back into Acts chapter 17 and verse 30, Paul makes it clear to the Athenians that they are no longer ignorant of their sin of worshiping false gods. That they are no longer ignorant of their sin of idol worship. That they are no longer ignorant of continuing to live in denial of the truth of the one true God and they are subject to his divine judgment now. And Paul proclaims that God demands every one, every single person there that was listening then and every single person that is listening right now, God demands for us to repent of our false, not only our false worship, but also our false understanding of who God is. And that when we repent from that and we turn, run to, and hold on to the grace that he offers through his son Jesus. That is our only option. Perhaps the most popular verse found in scripture is from Jesus, and he is proclaiming the love of his father for his creation. Jesus said this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's that simple. God is savior. Jesus is savior. And it is through Jesus, this is the only way that we have eternal life. And finally, the most important question that a skeptic will ever answer you, or will ever, sorry, will ever ask you. And it is your answer that will significantly change your life. It's not even the question, it's your answer that will change your life. And this is the same question that Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe Right? Do you believe? I remember I was doing a ride along with police for, for I'm going to say 12. I think it was about 10 and a half hours. We talked about Jesus. We talked about the resurrection. We talked about how Jesus has changed my life. And right before we got out of the car, right before we went back in the station, he said, hey, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah. He said, do you believe everything you just said? Absolutely. 
Right? Absolutely, I believe a guy. Ten hours of questions. That's worse than my kids because I could just send them to go ask their mother. I, had, I couldn't do that here. Right? I asked every single question, every question we answered. And he was driving so I could pull out my Bible and we could talk. And his answer was, or his question was, do you believe what you are saying? Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the res- resurrection and life? Do you believe that whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live? And everyone who lives and believes in him shall never die. Do you believe this? You have to be able to answer that question first. If we're going to be answering questions of the skeptics, we have to be able to answer that question first before we can engage any skeptics' questions. If today is the first time that you ever answer that question, yes. Nobody's ever asked you that question before. You're like, I never thought about it. Do I believe? Man, if this is the first time you've ever said yes to that, man, I would love to talk with you. I'd love to celebrate with you. If you're here in this room, you can see me in that back door. If you're online, you can email us. There's an there's a email online. If you're not in this room, I want you to tell somebody that and share with them. If you sat there and you say, yes, I do believe that, and I've never been baptized, I've never made a public profession of faith, Again, you can either email me or see me, and we would love to do that. We would love to celebrate with you as a, a church family, as you proclaim to be a follower of Jesus, as you are one that proclaims to everybody, to the world, that I am on Team Jesus, and I believe that Jesus is the, tr- the, the, the light, that Jesus is the life, that Jesus is the truth, that Jesus is the only way, and we would love to celebrate with you in that way. But church, when we are witnessing to skeptics, we just need to bring them back to the heart of their own questions. We need to bring them back to the the answer that is all about life. We just need to point them to Jesus. We don't need to chase the world's knowledge or be distracted by irrelevant questions. We just need to continue to point them to Jesus. The absolute truth for every one of life's questions is Jesus, the sole giver of life. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you. Uh, we thank you for your son, Jesus. Lord, we just thank you for the, the life that he breathes into us each day. We thank you for the words that he gives us. Well, Lord, we thank you for just the um, opportunity that he gives us to know him and to search him and to seek his heart. Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity we have today to come together and just gather as a local body of believers and worship him. Lord, may that be our heart's desire. May that be our focus. May that be our goal to just worship and glorify you to everyone, everywhere. May we have the courage to answer questions. May we have the courage to, to follow as the Lord leads. And Lord, may we have the courage just to trust you to transform hearts in our family, in our work, and in our neighborhoods, and in our community. Lord, we just love you, and we thank you. And it's in your son's name of Jesus we ask all of these things. Amen.